Welcome to Recalculating, Adventist Life Now. The topic today is leadership. I'm talking with Dr. Stan Patterson. Welcome, Stan. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Patterson teaches uh, in the area of leadership largely. He has uh, earned his doctoral degree in that area of study and provides significant leadership not only in seminary and university context, but for our faith movement in regard to what it means to offer Christian leadership in the context of our faith and witness. Um, and Stan, would you, you have an interesting vocational journey. Uh, you've pastored, you've served pastors in that process. You've also been engaged in conference uh, administration leadership, and now you're at the seminary. Would you just share with us what that vocational journey has meant in terms of your understanding of leadership? Okay. Well, I think, or first of all, Skip, thank you for inviting my uh, my participation in this conversation. Um, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that you left out in terms of my vocational journey is I started life as a farmer. Yes. And, and that truly had enormous impact on me. Uh, the, 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 the process of becoming accustomed to freedom happens in the context of farming probably more than any other vocation. Uh, being a self-starter, uh, knowing that you have to get up, get the work done, the, the demands of, of, of urgency that uh, you don't milk whenever you want to, you have to milk those cows twice a day, every day, Sabbath included. And, uh, and so I think I, I, I adjusted well to that. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to con uh, continue that, that, that journey as a farmer, but, uh, but I, I thank God regularly for the experience that gave, it gave to me and a deep abiding love for the freedom that comes with that, with that vocation. And, uh, and so that has served me well. However, it has also been the source of some pain in my journey in, in ministry. Um, but, uh, I started as a pastor, uh, in 1975, part-time, full-time, 1977. I pastored 17 years, then I served as a ministerial director in two different conferences, Greater New York and, uh, Georgia Cumberland as ministerial director, and then, uh, was called into administration in Georgia Cumberland, uh, from 2000 until, until 2000, late 2008. So that's kind of my journey. Uh, then I went to the seminary in 2008 and have uh, enjoyed that uh, that posting uh, enormously. And so that's yeah. my vocational journey. Those are contrast, <coughs> contrasting contexts, uh, various mm -hmm. regions of the United States. You've seen diverse cultures. You probably have some stories um, on, on the positive side. Can you describe a context in which uh, 
the leadership culture contributed to faith, to development, to a sense of joy in what you were doing? Um, I, I measure the, 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 the narrative I'm going to share with you. I measure against one that is somewhat more negative. Um, when I when I began my ministry, I, I again a vocational item that I left off was that I owned a construction company, a custom home company, for about four or five years, and and I went directly from that into into ministry, thinking that I would find something that I didn't find. I I assumed that I would find a context where I was free again. Um, where I, I could think and create and and what have you. But what I what I discovered was a, a very controlling context as, as a a little older young pastor, and I struggled with that to the point that I actually I actually left ministry by my conference's invitations <laughs> for a period of time, and. And so when I came back into ministry, I, I, I entered a context where I remember it was characterized by this, this, uh, th these instructions. Stan, do evangelism when you feel that the church you're pastoring is ready for evangelism. Now, I had come out of a cultural context in the southwestern part of the U.S. where all of that was planned for you, and you did you did evangelism on somebody else's schedule. You didn't choose the evangelist. You didn't choose when it was going to happen. It was all done for you. And that control element was very challenging for me. Um, I remember one really terrific year uh, when we practiced with, um, with cross-cultural evangelism and in a three-church district baptized 86 people in 1982. And and I still remember the comment from my direct report went something like this. <clears throat> Stan, what do you think you'll need to do to make a hundred? And that was a huge challenge for me. So when I, I, when I, when I began serving this other conference, I found that, that number one, conferences are not all created equal that the leadership choices of the people who serve that conference will set the tone for the conference. But I found the, the Rocky Mountain Conference to be incredibly open, very progressive in their attitudes toward leadership. Uh, I enjoyed enormous amount of freedom. And, uh, and so that was the context where I realized it, it does not have to be controlling. It does not have to be uh, a management-based hierarchical order that, uh, that governs how I, I accomplished what God had called me to do. Mm -hmm. And so that, that probably is the shining light, uh, Skip, for me, was those mm -hmm. years in Georgia Cumberland where I was treated as a professional mm -hmm. and, uh, and, 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 and I experienced a very open, uh, healthy model of leadership. In the uh, study of leadership, uh, we end up needing to uh, describe some distinctions between leader, uh, leading, and 
leadership. Let's talk about that for a mm -hmm. moment. Sure. Uh, when we say leadership, uh, describe uh, what we're talking about. Okay. Well, this is always a challenging uh, topic because uh, there's so many different uh, definitions of leadership, but I'll do my best to, to clarify where, where I'm at on that. Uh, I, I do not believe that leadership is a person or a group of people. And therefore, I'm, I'm reluctant to use it, say, for instance, the leadership of the General Conference or the leadership of, of Andrews University. Because the reality is all of us contribute to what leadership is in any given organization. And so I see leadership as a process. Uh, I'm going to even go further and say it is a relational process between two or more people that addresses a common interest and a common challenge or a common mission. Um, and so leadership is a process, not a person or a group of mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think our, our tendency towards hero worship, uh, mm -hmm. we feel like we have, to, we have to, to make leadership be a person, and I think that we lose too much with, with, that, with that definition. So in the context of a uh, local congregation, be it Seventh-day Adventist, be it conservative Protestant, be it Christian, be it a gathering of any people of any faith, or any organization in our community or workplace, we could describe a person, let's say a deacon, as uh, yes, uh, she or he uh, lead in the congregation by offering these services using their gifts. And as they lead, Yes, as everyone has an opportunity, they are leading, they're leaders, but you're saying leadership is more that space of process, the relational exchange. It's, it's that collective space in relational process, and everybody is involved in it. That's helpful, Stan. Yeah, so yeah. we could speak of a person offering a, themselves as a leader in the conference, but they, like everybody else, is putting their shoulder to the wheel, helping in our mission. That's good. That's yeah. helpful. Well, and I think that, that the tendency is to confuse leadership with position. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible to to not have a position and still be contribute, still contributing in a mighty way toward the leadership of a local congregation or uh, a community, uh, if you will. Uh, so uh, I, I sometimes use this little catchphrase that that position is incidental to leadership. Ah, uh, excellent. That's excellent. And uh, I have uh, described conversations where I've. I've sat down with a group of um, Christian people of faith in their congregational context and asked them who's had the most influence in their life. And if you include in the choices people of position and you include in the choices the word friend, inevitably it will be friend or family member 
<laughs> who's yeah. had the most influence. I have found the same thing to be true, Skip. Which tells us that that leadership culture we all build and we all contribute to that influences yeah. and changes people. All right, all right, very good. Now, I want to look at some of the contributions you have offered uh, in your written work and ask that that you reflect on them with us in this conversation. I, okay. I, I of course, shared some spaces of time and place with you as both you and I have served, and I've read a great deal of your work, and, and I wish we could spend more time with it, but I'm just going to pick a few pieces. Okay. You wrote once, the goal of this model of leadership uh, of rulership, you said, which is interesting. You see, I, uh, I kind of you know, revealed a sense of that tension. You wrote, the goal of this model of rulership or leadership is dominance. And you were speaking of working from a, a hierarchical positional space. In this view, coercion is considered fair play as a means to achieve that end. Can you reflect on that for a sure, moment? Sure, sure. Uh, actually, this, this paragraph uh, that, you're, that you're citing uh, comes out of a reflection on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where, where God, <coughs> excuse me, where God lists the thoughts out of, out of Lucifer's heart and reveals them in Scripture for all to see. And Lucifer becomes dissatisfied with his position, and he, he then calls himself. It's a self-ascendant uh, self model that, uh, that he introduces into the, the concept of leadership, and, and, and we inherit that from him. Um, but his model is so different from that of Christ. You know, the model identified in the creation story is a model of conversation in the context of community. It is, it, I mean, one of the most powerful one, parts of that is, is verse 26 of Genesis 1, where, where a voice says, let's make man in our image, but the voice is never identified. You know that it's a conversation between the, the, the Godhead and members of the Godhead, but this the idea that I don't need credit if I am contributing to the context of something that we are doing. Mm -hmm. Credit credit is shared. And uh, and so what Lucifer introduced was a leadership model that leveraged dominance that that used coercion if coercion would 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 work and that that's revealed from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, well, and, uh, and don't humans constantly revert to uh, control and dominance as a center or a place in which they can work to accomplish a certain end? Well, my observation and something I include in classes for for my students is that once we exhaust the resources that we have gained through training, uh, through learning, uh, through reading, 
Once we exhaust those options in terms of leading, we will almost always revert back to control and dominance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's an unfortunate reality. And it, it, it also tells me that we need, to be tre- we need to be teaching leadership skills to elementary school students. Moms and dads ought to be teaching leadership. And I'm talking about a God-honoring model of leadership. We ought to be teaching it to our children in our homes where we can actually give leadership responsibility and, and help a child to grow to become the kind of leader that would honor God and honor his, the, the church that we serve. You use the phrase in regard to that process, universal spiritual rules. Um, mm. Yeah, reflect for a moment on what those universal spiritual rules are. You, you spoke of it, but <clears throat> expand yeah, well, that a bit. Well, the most essential is that we have to be able to honestly say that we love the people that we lead. And I'm going to say something that maybe seems a little extreme, but that we love them to the extent that Christ loved the church and was willing to die for them. Mm-hmm. That, that love is, a, is an essential indicator of our grasp of God-honoring leadership. And so, so the spiritual rules are, are built around that concept of love. I believe that the fruit of the Spirit is a, is, is a much neglected part of New Testament theology. That the fruit of the Spirit is not something that's an option. It is a requirement for all. And I think particularly a leader needs to be able to understand that that there are rules that govern Christian leadership behavior. And and the degree to which they pass muster, as we look through the list of, of, of the fruit of the Spirit, which are basically relational standards that are codified in the New Testament, that it is there that we find uh, guidelines for what is our what is expected of our behavior as leaders, and I think love comes first. Uh, the golden rule fits into that. Um, the the fact that I should be leaving people better off than I found them. If I'm a leader for a period of time, have I made a transformational difference in the people that I have been charged with caring for? Because it is a caring responsibility. It's not just to get things done. Um, yeah, be it parent or military leader, mm-hmm. be it uh, a local church elder or a business uh, executive, uh, be it a uh, church pastor or a uh, uh, United States president. Um, whatever position we find ourselves in, that decision to uh, use the authority, power, or dominance of position that society may offer uh, to accomplish an end, uh, you describe as a temptation. I, I am often reminded of a quotation of Henry Nouwen, power is an easy substitute for love. Mm. 
Yes. It's yes. it seems it seems like we constantly feel like in order to establish the kingdom of God, for God to be glorified, we have to use the power that might be available to us to assert and and control the context so that it is godlike. Does it seem like in that process we risk the very nature of God? God is love. And we, we risk the very culture of love when we assert dominance and control to uh, create uh, obedience and um, respect for law. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now you, you write you write something here that I want you to reflect further on. There was no centralized human leader in the time of the judges. Mm. Every every man answered directly to the Creator. Now we know Israel sought for a king. You yeah. say each person behaved according to his or her personal commitment. You bring something out in the uh, writing that uh, I am reflecting on that you have offered us that actually as each person established the relationship with God, that was a positive thing. And you, you say this seems like a risky approach to corporate faithfulness and even national order. Well, but it was clearly Gideon's understanding of the mm -hmm. governance structure that God was seeking. Yes, yes. Well, I think that, uh, and I don't want to sound critical, so uh, I would do my best not to be. Um, the We have to be able to trust that the Holy Spirit can and will reflect himself through us and that and that the the ability to discern right and wrong is not something that we're just left alone to to experience or to accomplish um the state there are two verses in judges where it says there was no king in israel in those days and we and every man did what seemed right in his own eyes uh, most most people have a tendency to read that as a negative but Judges is interesting in the fact that the judges, the concept or the, the construct of governance under the judges is the only model that God gave to humans that did not have human input. In other words, the design for that leadership model was God's model. Now, we wonder why it didn't do better, and I think that uh, this is... This is the reality of righteousness and uh, and the need for righteousness by faith is that the failure was a human failure, not because the design was wrong. But truly in the New Testament model, we go back to that situation where we don't look to somebody else to intercede for us before the Father or before the Son. We have a Holy Spirit. And so it could be said of us in, in 2021 that each of us must do what seems right in our own eyes. In other, words, in other words, informed by the reading of God's Word, informed by the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, we, we choose to do what's right, but we do not have to depend on a human being to tell us what's right. 
Not that that doesn't happen at times where we're rebuked or encouraged in the word. Um, but it is, it's, my, it's my belief that God will indeed work through his spirit, especially in this New Testament period, and grant us the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. We have the word of God in one hand, we have the Holy Spirit in the other, and, and, uh, and so I don't need to be under someone's, someone's uh, coercive authority Mm-hmm. In order, in order to find the right way, or to to believe the right thing, or to walk in the right path, I I'm going to uh, quote for our listeners a paragraph um, of an article you have provided us in the Journal of Applied Christian Leadership, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just going to read uh, the paragraph and ask our folk who may be listening and joining this conversation with us in that way to to think about it. Um, It was from this lofty site that Jesus began his journey of incarnation. The word became flesh. He became Emmanuel not by requiring us to ascend the mount but by coming down to serve our transformational needs. He dwelled with us, defied the strictures of polite Jewish society, and ate with us, even with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was betrothed to the church, even while she herself played the harlot, and he laid aside the prerogative of position and announced that his preferred relationship was friend rather than master. So the journey of leading becomes, as you describe it, a journey of becoming servant. It is a downward path from a lofty position or rule or control to service and love. Now, how do you, how do you uh, respond to people who say uh, that's weak or that's an invitation to disorder? It doesn't yeah. uphold law. How do you yeah. respond to people? Well, n- number one, the the uh, there are two trajectories that are obvious in the plan of salvation and maybe I should say in the narrative of the great controversy where Lucifer declares the five I wills of Isaiah 14 I will arise I will ascend I will sit upon the highest upon the highest point etc etc so it is a it's an upward vertically measured uh, journey to follow leadership model of Lucifer Jesus, on the other hand, comes to a point in time, you know, there was war in heaven, we know that, the, and the, the stress uh, uh, that was exhibited between Lucifer and, and the Godhead. There comes a point in time where Jesus stands up and says, I'm going down. I'm going to embrace the title Emmanuel, God with us. And, and he had to go down because we couldn't go up. And he descended to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. So it is leadership on a descendant model. 
and and you've already mentioned, you know, the the fact that it was typified by the fact that he ate with the unacceptable people. Um, but I have had people come to to me and challenge the model that I'm using, and I've even had them use the exact words that you use. You're teaching a weak model of leadership. Um, I'm I'm indebted to a Korean scholar, uh, Gyeong Chun Che, that I worked with some years ago, who studied the Book of Revelation and looked at the Lamb and compared the leadership model of the Lamb with the leadership model of the dragon, which was a fascinating study. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that he revealed was that was that throughout the Book of Revelation, the the Lamb never speaks. Yet there are 144,000 that follow him wherever he goes. The dragon speaks often, and he speaks almost always in a, in a threatening, coercive manner. And so my response to those who would challenge this love-based model as weak, I would say, who wins in the contest between the lamb and the dragon? And it's obvious that the lamb wins. So I'm 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 going to put my I'm going to put my um, trust and my confidence in the lamb. Whether he yes. speaks, whether he he's he's a tough leader or not, he uh-huh. wins. Yes. Well, and uh, as uh, you and others have so frequently described, the narratives of Jesus' ministry are most powerful when they describe his sitting down and teaching or leaning down and healing yes. or placing his healing hand on a child or taking a child in his arms to bless them. He yes. came down and healed. He, that descendant model of love is of greater power. And I've had some people say, yeah, but Jesus went into the temple and he raised the whip and he chased out those offenders. And I, I asked people to reflect a bit. Now, was Jesus some uh, imposing physical model uh, that uh, dozens of people were afraid of, his physical strength? Obviously, uh, no, that's not the case. Did he come with the authority of the political or municipal powers? No. Of the religious authority, did he come dressed as a priest when he did that or with the priests surrounding him? No. It was obviously a sense of the contrast of this person's heart, the altruism of Jesus, mm-hmm. the love of Jesus, the authority gained by being a true servant, reminding them of the purpose of the temple that convicted them of God and of their need to transform what they were doing yes. and led them to flee that engagement. That's so obvious. Um, there, there's an interesting text in Revelation, uh, Skip, mm-hmm. um, chapter 3, verse 21, where, where Jesus says that, that um, he that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I sit down with my father on his throne. 
I think it's, it, for me, it's, it's interesting to visualize that throne. Because it's the same throne that Lucifer was, was pursuing and tried to take in his coup attempt against God. And he never, he never achieved it. Yet we will be passively lifted up and seated upon the throne simply by virtue of the fact that we overcome in the power of the Lamb and by the power of the Spirit. And now, we as followers of Jesus uh, are gifted, and you described how important it is to consider uh, what the Scripture says about the call of everyone to ministry and the spiritual gifts we receive the natural talents that mm -hmm. are committed, the time. So all of us are called to service. We gather in this relationship as congregation, as church. How, what difference, maybe I should, should ask, uh, what difference will it make in this stewardship, this servanthood model of leadership in the local church and in the mission of our movement if we can embrace this model how it how will it work and affect on a practical level the way we go about doing church i think it has has the potential for profound impact um i think one of the things that we under undervalue is the discovery that can happen when we walk into a church where love is actually practiced. Those of us who have traveled for the denomination and oftentimes in a different church every Sabbath, uh, will, I think can, can uh, embrace this concept better than, than most, simply by the fact that you can go into a church and be there in just a few minutes and you know whether or not this is a church where, where, where love reigns supreme. And I would find myself going back home after finding a church like that, saying to my wife, I wish that we were closer to this church. I said it would be a wonderful place to enjoy Sabbath every Sabbath. Because, and, and the things that made, made, made it special was not the abundance of spiritual gifts. It was not the, the number of people that they baptized that year. It was, not, it was nothing quantitative. It was the qualitative presence of love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. Those are the things that, that make a person want to come back. And, and I think that, that if we could embrace a model like that, uh, uh, Ellen White I'm a fan of Ellen White, so I'm just going to confess that straight out. She had been such a blessing to me in my leadership studies. But she quotes, or she uh, she responds to a scriptural quote in, in Luke 4, where where Jesus asked a question, what are, by what example can I typify or, or illustrate the kingdom of God? And Ellen White responds for him. She says, there is no earthly model in society that can be used to to typify the kingdom of God. I believe the church is the only model available where where you see life lived in the absence of coercion, the absence of control and where the fruit of the spirit reigns supreme. Mhm. Mm All right. Well, and in a uh, 
another one of your um, contributed works, you describe um, uh, this law of love, if you will, where uh, behavioral standards are nested in this great law that helps us avoid selfish ambition. Uh, and I found it interesting how you brought out that, uh, yes, selfish ambition, the sense of security we seek through prideful position, et cetera, is one thing, but there, there's also this deception that as good stewards, we must control and dominate. And, and in that process, we actually lose the spirit of Christ. And yes, yes. we're not count uh, relying on the fruit of the spirit. Y you, you include a quote that says, no man has been made a master to rule the mind and conscience of a fellow being. Right. And I, I appreciate, Stan, that you hold up this model of a relational, congregational, uh, formation dependent on the spirit uh, and I don't want to um, you know launch into uh, defining of our ecclesiological terms because that's a, a conversation for a different day but we could build around an Episcopal model or something where the hierarchy uh, is assigned by God to control others. And in contrast, you see the body and a spiritual body. And, and I really appreciate that in your contributions. Well, I, I think that we, we err when we, we, when we refer to the church as the organization because the church predated the organization. Mm. And the church came together as a body, and they created the organization to assist in this in in the pursuit of the mission of the church. So the the the, the organization was designed to serve the church, not the church, the organization. And and I think it's important to note that that which is created can never become that which created it. Ah. And the organization can never be the church. Once we separate the church, let me see, let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. Once we separate the church from the organization, from the create, be, being the creative force in what brought the organization into being, we actually slip into a type of idolatry where we worship what was created, not what God created. Ah. And we as a people are the church. And when we forget that, when we forget that, then it'll, it gives us allowance in, in leading in a controlling and, and, and uh, authoritarian manner. Mm -hmm. Because any leadership that is not authorized by God is authoritarian. In other words, it is, it is, it, the authority to do so comes from some source other than from God. Ah, so yes. I, I think I think we have to kind of hang on to that to realize that it's people and the relational context is the primary context of the church. We're not saved by the organization. Never. God is the center. That's right. God is our leader, if you will, in terms of this spiritual body and calls us 
Excellent. Thank you, Stan. I, I want to, as a closing focus here, um, a text that I know is dear to your heart and to mine, share with folk who are in this conversation with us familiar reflections from Jesus recalled by John. Uh, John recalls the words in John fifteen fifteen and following. Mm, powerful verse. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. It's like Jesus is saying, you know how it is in the world. Uh, the master controls and tells you what to do and just says, go do it. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. Jesus is saying there is a relationship that we share. You didn't choose me, he says. I chose you. Yes. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. And again, yes, Stan, Jesus is saying that it is God who is the center. It's not yes. organization. It is the Spirit in his body. This is my command, Jesus says. <laughs> this is my command. Love each other. Yep. And if we were going to, if we were going to say, ah, this is what leadership is in the calling to be Christian and follow Jesus, uh, you mentioned it—a relational process. Love each other. Ah, good. Hey, Stan, thank you for joining this conversation today. Well, it's been been my pleasure. And folk, uh, I thank you for listening. This is Skip Bell. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.